Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to 1,000 Recordings Podcast, Episode 63. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always, every week, every show, is sex symbol Mitchell Davis. All <laughs> <Yeah>, right. Hey. <laughs> Yeah, I've never considered myself to be a sex symbol, <laughs> but I'll take that. <laughs> even um, when, even in my younger days, where I, I didn't look the way I do now, uh, <laughs> you know, sex symbol, <laughs> I've never thought myself to be. Well, man, somebody, some people may disagree, you know. But I, I'll take that. Like it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, so today on the show, um, yeah, we were having some uh, audio difficulties earlier, and we're really crossing our fingers and hoping that everything goes okay and that they don't creep up again. Um, so uh, today on the show, uh, we're going to do some more albums, of course, from Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die. The first album we're going to look at is The Doors, their self-titled debut. Then we're going to look at a collection of music by Thomas A. Dorsey, uh, gospel uh, musician and composer and then we're going to f- end with Michael Duche I think I'm saying that right and Beau Soleil um, a sort of Cajun Zydeco kind of group <laughs> yeah yeah it's more like like kind of like revival too yes so I think they were definitely making, making the music from a point of view where the music was dying and they're like uh, let's Let's see what we can do to keep that from happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Yeah. So, uh, so first the doors. Wow. I know. <laughs> it's like where where do you start with this? There's uh, so much surrounding this group and Jim Morrison and so many stories, you know, that, yeah. that can be told. We we could spend an entire show, maybe two just on stories about Jim Morrison. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'd heard stuff over the years about him just here and there, but when you really start to read about that guy, yes, he, he did a lot to be, I mean, obviously he, he died really young, but in that period, I mean, it was really, you know, it was insane. <laughs> yeah. Some of the things that he went through, I mean, I mean, it was, it was obviously it was, you know, sixties, late sixties and seventies. And that was an insane time, but yeah, he's, he's, a, he's quite a figure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he was like, he kind of embodies that time to the nth degree. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. just like everything that he did and his attitudes and his actions and, um, how he lived and, uh, you know, it's no wonder that there's all this mystique and stuff surrounding him and surrounding his life. Yeah, yeah I, I think it, Jim Morrison, when when you read about him and his family, like his parents and everything, he was kind of like a, a perfect storm for that period of, a you know, the, the so-called, you know, troubled rock star who, who, by the way, was really, really intelligent. First of all, Jim Morrison was a really smart guy. Yes. You know, above and beyond your average reader, you know, I mean, he, he read like 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 a beast. I mean, he read all sorts of literature, went really deep into 
you know, you know, Blake and all these different poets and, um, you know, had a, a military father who was, you know, a high ranking military official and a, and a, a mother who was like, you know, basically like, you know, sixties, you know, home rearing mom, that, but was also smart too. And, and his dad was a musician, a really talented musician. I mean, it just made for a kid that, you know, had this, he, he was really smart, but really rebellious even in his nature. And I mean, at that period, you know, that was just a time where people were kind of wanting to, to break out of the, the norm, if you would. And yeah. he was just like the prince of that, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, yes. So much to, to say yeah, about, about Jim Morrison. And I, obviously we don't, we don't spend too much time, but yeah, he's, I, I mean, so many, like you said, so many stories and so much history about that one guy. Um, yes. Um, you know, just, uh, I guess, a little bit about the Doors. You know, they got together in 1965, Los Angeles, as you said. Uh, Jim Morrison was this kind of military brat, if you will. You know, his, his parents moved around a lot when he was a kid. Uh, I guess, which I would think, you know, gave him a sort of, broader view of people you know when you constantly moving around you're in this place and that place and yeah um and uh they formed in 1965 uh you know started playing the clubs in la and uh finally became the house band in the whiskey a go-go which was like i guess the club to play at in la at the time and uh they actually got fired from that job. I'll talk about that when we talk about the show, the end, the 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 song, the end. The song, but, yeah. Um, but uh, and you know they had some false starts and stuff, and but like many bands in the '60s, um, even in the late '50s, um, they did they didn't get their real big break until they went on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm-hmm. So and th- that was true for so many acts at the time. Yeah. Uh, the Ed Sullivan show really just broke so many people, you know, e- even, you know, the Beatles and, and others. Um, yep. Yep. Fast yeah. Domino. I, there's a clip that I posted on our, our website, uh, Fast Domino on, on Ed Sullivan. Um, it was, it was the premier show. Yeah. Like you said, for so many acts to make their sort of American debut, especially, yeah. um, where they they may have been popular in other places, but if you went on that show, and you especially if you did well, the United States would embrace you. Especially at that period, you know, in the '60s, where that was just like the jump off point. Yeah, just think about TV, how how much different it was then and now. And you know. well, yeah, I mean, so different. And I mean, you know, the the audience is spread so thin now. Between, you know, we have almost infinite choice yeah. of entertainment you know, spanning television and cable television and the internet and, and everything yeah. else. And back then, man, you had, I mean, you were lucky if you had three channels Yeah, and you, you were lucky if you could get a signal. Right. <laughs> and places. yeah. And when the Ed Sullivan show, the Ed Sullivan show came on at night, uh, you know, you're talking about playing in front of an audience of tens of millions yeah. And you just don't have that kind of, you know, audience, that concentrated audience anymore. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's the the whole issue, like you said, with the the amount of choice, you know, the Internet has made it much worse. You know, I mean, I say worse, but I mean, I 
you know, I, I kind of use that not in a literal sense where it's just made it a a lot more, you know, complicated in some ways where that, like you said, that audience has been thinned out. But but this is like a situation where, you know, everybody knew Ed Sullivan's coming on. You know, it's going to be Sammy Davis Jr. It's going to be, you know, Janis Joplin. It's going to be somebody that's going to be huge that'll come on that show and yeah. it's going to be amazing. So people were waiting. But now, you know, I mean, somebody could be coming on TV tonight that's just amazing. And I I wouldn't even know. I mean, I don't I can't remember the last time I picked up a TV guide. <laughs> I mean, it's oh, right. You know, it's everything's different. So, yeah, I mean, this was a for the doors was just major. And I mean, the the controversy about that appearance where you know, Jim Morrison would often write these lyrics that at times would seem somewhat, you know, cryptic, but but on the surface you could tell, you know, even what he was really talking about. They wanted him to change the lyrics to Light My Fire, you know, a couple of the lyrics, you know, you know, girl, we couldn't get much higher, you know, obviously, right, you know, right. thinking drug use. And then, you know, I love become a funeral pyre, you know, Jim's you know, really unusual fascination with death and things surrounding death that disturbed a lot of people too. And he, he at first said he would change it. And of course they went on and didn't change a thing. You know? Yeah. And, and t- um, typical Jim Morrison style. He just, yeah. 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 Just uh, constantly rebelling constantly, you know, in, in a period too, getting in trouble for that rebellious nature. When people begin to kind of, you know, think about who he was and they're like well you know what if he does what we think he's going to do then he's going to jail or we're gonna you know do whatever and and people eventually they they waited for him to to go jim morrison so to speak and and he he would deliver <laughs> yeah. you know so um yeah yeah, yeah just yeah. um inter- like i said we could really spend the whole show you know, focusing on him. I mean, I mean, the rest of the band too. I mean, they were really, really fascinating, fascinating guys that that were very adventurous. You know, and what they what they did. You know, with music and mixing jazz and and poetry and rock and roll and psychedelic psychedelic sounds. Um, you know, I I love the Doors. <laughs> I really, I've loved them since I was like you know a kid. Uh, when I could first listen to music and and hear music, and not really realizing all that was, you know, entailed in the sound and and what they were, you know, kind of going for. I mean, I just I just loved what they were doing, even though I didn't quite understand, you know, you know, when I first started getting into them, I was probably about about eight or nine years old, I guess, you know, long after they had, you know, been done. But still, I mean, you know, listening to the radio. I mean, how can you not get into Light My Fire? I mean, it's just one of those songs that, yeah. you know, it, it just has that, that steady groove in the middle where it just seems like it just goes on and on. And anyway, um, you know. Well, just... we ha- I have to tell at least a couple stories. Go get <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're too good not to tell. Oh, yeah. Um, And like you said, yeah, Jim Morrison was uh, unbelievably rebellious and anti-authoritarian you know and um there was one incident uh at a new haven a concert in new haven connecticut in 1967 where i guess uh he was making out with a fangirl backstage and uh the a policeman came by and basically 
you know, told him to to leave. And Morrison replied with, eat it. <laughs> and the policeman took out a can of mace and he said to Morrison, he's like, last chance. And then Morrison replied, last chance to eat it. And then the cop maced them both. And yeah. so at the show, uh, the, I guess the cops were sort of surrounding the stage, like keeping fans back and stuff. Yeah, because they would trust me. They would try to get up on stage. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. And halfway through, Morrison just launches into this rant, this sort of obscenity laced rant just telling the crowd what happened, like exactly what happened backstage with this cop. Mm-hmm. And he ended up being dragged off stage by the police mid show and arrested. And, uh, yeah, that I was, think a riot, know, I think a riot broke out after that too. I think they, yes, the, the place was pretty much, uh, destroyed. <laughs> yes. I, I, I think you could probably go to YouTube and find some footage of that. Um, because I, I think I, I'm I'm pretty sure that incident has been kind of documented, and yeah, that that was that was just one of many. <laughs> yeah, one of many. Yeah, um, there was an, another incident, you know, at, in Miami in 1969, where he arrived late because he missed he kept missing his flights to Miami because he was extremely drunk. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, he got there, they started the show late, and he was just completely hammered on stage. And um, I guess had been into this, uh, going to see this experimental theater group in L.A., which had like a very antagonistic style of performance art. Uh, so he's on stage like antagonizing the crowd. Like yeah. saying, you know, you all are a bunch of effing idiots. What are you going to do about it? And he's screaming at them and... Uh, you know, just crazy, you know, antagonizing the cops again. And, um, just, there's, there are so many stories like that of him, you know, the, the, the last one I, you know, I saw was basically like their final performance in 1970, I think something like that. Um, where, uh, he basically just like mid show, just grabbed the microphone and started slamming it against the stage until it broke through the stage and then threw it down and sat on the floor just right on stage and then refused to perform the rest of the show and just sat there. (laughs) Yeah. And that was their last show. (laughs) Yeah. He just like, I don't know if he just, just broke down or, you couldn't know, couldn't handle it anymore or what? I, but. I'm sure there was a multitude of issues along with, you know, you know, the drinking, the drugs, women. And I mean, the women, that's another issue where Morrison was like, like he was like a lawnmower where he he was he was one of the most notorious womanizers ever that's a that's an analogy i never heard a like a lawnmower <laughs> he was i mean it was just like he was just like i want to be with every woman i see and i mean obviously that's not even healthy <laughs> but yeah. I mean, there were there and there were plenty of women there i mean um and i mean that just like you said the episodes the last one where he he freaks out i mean there's so many of those i i wondered if if you know it was issues with depression i'm pretty sure you know that would creep in maybe sometimes 
you know, he sounds like a person that could have been bipolar. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Could have. He been. would go from from moments of being just really cool and 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 shy even to like this maniac, you know, like King Kong from the Empire State Building, just hanging off and people coming after him. And um, one story that um, David Crosby told once years ago Bob Costas had a show called Later which oh, came yeah. out about one, 1 o'clock in the morning and, and David Crosby's on there you know of course Crosby steals the Nash stories but then he, he told us Jim Morrison story about a party they were at in New York at um oh I'm trying to think of this guy's name I think it was um John Davidson which he there was a show called That's Incredible, which it was it was like all these clips of people doing goofy <laughs> yeah, stuff. I remember and it was that. like Fran Tarkington, uh Sure. Um Kathleen Crosby, I think I think John Davidson, I think that I think that was the guy's name. He was the other guy. Anyway, it was at his apartment. And Jim Morrison is there, really, really drunk, really, really obnoxious, just messing with everybody. You know, just walking up trying to read poetry and just just being the kind of a dingling. Well, apparently, you know, Janice Joplin was also at this party and he starts to bother Janice and Janice is like, leave me alone. You know, you're drunk, blah, blah, blah. Well, he's he's like trying to get all up in her face and apparently grabbed her. Well, Janice grabbed a bottle of liquor, hit Jim Morrison in the head and broke it over his head. Wow. Knocking him unconscious to where he falls on the floor. And then people go on about their business at the party like nothing had happened stepping over jim morrison at points where he lays on the floor wow. unconscious this is a story that david like said david Crosby told him i was just like unbelievable <laughs> you know where you know you have some famous and probably some not so famous people at a party and jim morrison is knocked out and it's like ah, okay it's, it's just jim let's just keep going <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean who knows how long he laid there or whatever but i mean that that's just like one of the craziest stories that I've heard about him where he, you know, was involved in yeah. something anyway, you know, <laughs> notoriously bad and, and kooky and anyway. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, believe me, we could, we could go on and on and on with Jim Morrison stories, but, uh, let's get to the music here. Um, the first song that we're going to look at is, um, Alabama song whiskey bar. And, uh, this is one that you suggested um, is actually like one of the few songs on the, on the album that, uh, it, you know, it's a cover essentially, yeah. basically um, it's, it was originally written um, as part of a, uh, what was called a singspiel in, uh, in Germany in the early part of the 20th century. It was kind of like a musical and uh, it was written by, well, the the words were written by Bertolt Brecht, and the the music was written by Kurt Weil, and it was for their their sing, singspiel. I'll try to pronounce this: Aufstieg und Fall der Stadt Mahogany. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you for 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 that because I was I looked at that I was like no freaking way am I going to try to say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think that was a an all right pronunciation. Yeah. You know, I good enough. At good least enough it's not me. French. I yeah, I cannot pronounce French. Um, for anybody who's ever heard me try, but uh, yeah. So and uh, 
they did this. They made a little, some little changes, you know, yeah. uh, in the original lyric, uh, he says, show us the way to the next little boy, which was changed to show me the way to the next little girl, which I'm sure, uh, happened often in Jim's uh, life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's 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 one of those songs that to me when I when I listen to it I think about you know the the inspiration for Jim to even want to try to record it it's it just it's typical of, of of his nature you know where they would take something so not rock and roll obviously and and make it rock and roll even though you can hear you know elements of the original song in it um, and uh, and the instrument that that Ray plays their 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 keyboard the late keyboard player organist ray manzarek um oh i i i had it written down but i i can't remember it's like this it's like a little tiny like a little tiny metallic keyboard where it's it's a tall analog i'll, I'll think of it in a second but anyway um you know it, it sounds just like old english style in the way it's almost like a like a waltz at times the way the 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 music moves yes you yes. know and um and I just thought that that was really cool. And then, and then, then the elements of of going to you know the next whiskey bar, like they've you know this is like been going on all day, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And just the the inspiration for that, and then them going through, you know, you know, oh, don't ask why, you know, we're we're trying to figure it out ourselves, you know, as we go. And I I, I love that about this song. Um, I think one of the first times I heard this song, it was watching uh, a TV show that used to come on, speaking of old TV, called WKRP in Cincinnati, uh-huh. where uh, Johnny Fever was playing this song as they did this. Uh, it's an infamous episode where they did this drinking test to show how alcohol affects, you know, reaction time and all that. And and Johnny, as he drank, his reaction time got much better. <laughs> As some of the other people that were testing theirs got worse but Johnny was just like you know just the <laughs> ultimate you know kind of burnout rock and roller sort of who for whatever reason when he drank his his whole demeanor and everything got much better like a functioning drunk but but almost like in in the reverse where you know he he would come in the studio and just ready to play records but still just kind of groggy well, he's drinking, and it's like everything is is getting much better as far as like the way he reacts and talks. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't even make sense, but it's hilarious, you know. And I like I said, I totally every time I think about this song, I think about that that scene <laughs> uh, in that show. But um, back to the song, yeah, I mean, just you know, they were they were really really kind of a different group to where there were some talented guys who were really kind of willing to take chances you know even if it didn't work you know they were just like that's okay it's it's all a part of the experience it's all a part of you know being alive and 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 trying to do things you know a different way that haven't been done again and again and again you yeah know? so yeah i mean it's an interesting choice you know to take this song that was written uh in the 1920s you know for a german kind of musical and mm-hmm. but the same time it so weirdly fits their persona so perfectly you know yeah um and uh yeah let's just check it out 
Cool. Okay, this is The Doors with Alabama song Whiskey Bar. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. Show me. I tell you we must die I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die Alabama song whiskey bar. I'm going to move on to the end. Um, <clears throat> what a song, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot going on here. Um, it gets very philosophical and very deep uh-huh. um, and very open to interpretation, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, this is a song that, I think I had heard little, little snippets like the whole uh, father. Yes, son, I want to kill you. You know, that whole thing I had heard just in a little snippet. Right. Um, I never listened to the whole thing, like from beginning to end. Really? Wow. And uh, (laughs) yeah, that's the thing. Like uh, the more we listen to and the more we are, you know, research for the show and stuff. And I listen to the music. um the more I kind of got into it. I mean, I've never like disliked the doors, you know what I'm saying? But I, I never in the past, like loved them either. I've never really owned a doors album. Um, and, uh, I don't know what it was about this time, but this time I went into it and I started listening and I'm like, you know, this is some pretty damn good stuff. And, you know, I, I, just researching Jim Morrison and all this stuff behind his lyrics. And, uh, this one, the end, um, it grabbed me at the beginning because I really just, I thought it was musically cool. And, uh, then just going through listening to the whole thing, uh, it gets, gets kind of dark. Yeah. <laughs> it, it gets, it gets dark and, but, uh, it, I don't know. Very literary and very, theatrical and I'm philosophical. So, so, glad, so glad you said that. The theatrical, yes. I mean, Jim Morrison, you know, before he decided to be in a rock and roll band, was um, a film school student. You know, we if you, you know, we, we read that too. So I think there was definitely 
you know, obviously, you know, musical, you know, attributes that were very strong. And he was a poet. But I think there was part of him that was definitely an actor. You know, I mean, he was, yes. the theatrics were, I mean, way off the chain <laughs> at times yeah. with him. And I, I think he, he, he loved that. He loved to be able to mix all of that, especially on stage live. I mean, there's so much footage of him on stage live in that short period that they ran where he's doing all kinds of stuff that that people had never really done prior to him. I mean, he I'm sure he scared the shit out of some people, <laughs> you know, and then another reason why the police a lot of times had to be called in because he would he would literally incite people, not necessarily to do bad stuff, but just to the point of where they they just couldn't take it anymore. They were like, you know, I'm going to pull my hair out. I'm going to jump on stage. I'm going to do something, but I can't just sit here in my seat anymore because Jim Morrison is, you know, sort of whirling me up into this sensation, you know. And I, I think that was something that he did deliberately, but sometimes maybe things would just happen and, you know, he probably didn't even know what was going to happen. But, yeah, um, yeah, this song is is definitely more of the, the, the theatrical um, side of the doors where it, it, it almost, you know, it, it plays almost like a play on stage or a musical on stage yeah. or something that a little bit where you, like you said, you hear him talking towards the, towards the end of the song. Um, but, um, yeah, well he goes into this like sort of surreal Oedipus Rex kind of story. Um, and if, uh, those of you who out there who aren't familiar with that story, it's an ancient Greek play, uh, essentially about, you know, this person Oedipus who is gets you know exiled when he's a child then comes back to the kingdom which he doesn't know uh he's the child of this kingdom and he comes back as sort of a conqueror he kills the king which is his father he doesn't know Mm -hmm. that and then he marries the queen which is his mother and he doesn't know that and at the end he finds out the truth and he gouges out his eyes and all says, you know, it's an old yeah. Greek tragedy. And so he tells this sort of weird Oedipus Rex story. And when I was listening to it, um, there's one thing that I found out in my research because I I'll, I'll get to it in a second that he starts doing. I was like, Whoa, what? I was like this, I was like, was this really on the record in 1967? So I go back and I do some research. So if you listen to this song, you go on Spotify or something and listen to the song. This is the restored version. Yeah. Um, the original version that was released had a bunch of stuff removed, a bunch of uh, Jim Vor- Morrison's vocals removed uh, from yeah. the tape because <laughs> he starts just this... Uh, string of fucks. Uh-huh. I mean, it, you know, to put it in perspective, like I remember in the late '80s when stuff started coming out, like uh, Straight Outta Compton or whatever, and there was a lot of f bombs on that, and and people thought it was shocking then, you know, in the late '80s. And I was like, "There's no way this came out in the in the in '67 like this." <laughs> but in Jim Morrison's mind, it's amazing, like. I don't know what he was thinking. Like, was he thinking, you know, this will be fine. Like, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> or, or 
I don't know. Like, uh, it's amazing to hear. And so I'm going to play this part. So if oh, you're yeah. offended by the F word, um, you know, you might want to skip over it. But it, it's amazing that someone in 1967 would just let loose like this. Um, not even in a live recording on a record, on like a debut record. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the, you know, his, his, it's difficult to put yourself in Jim Morrison's position and like understand his mind. It's very hard to understand. Um, yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're you're right. Um, yeah, he he. Um, I, I think, like you said, I mean, I I wonder sometimes, you know, what was he thinking? Was he thinking? Because I, I get it, like right. I said, I'm sure right. he, I'm sure he scared some people to death. You know, where they were just like, "What is wrong with yeah. this guy?" Yeah. Um. It, okay, the <clears throat> the movie that um that came out about the doors of Val Kilmer, um, which um. Oh, I'm drawing a blank. The guy who did Platoon. Oliver uh, Stone. Oliver Stone. His, his version of the Doors, where they, there's a part of the movie where they, the song, the it, it comes up where that that part where he goes off, and you can tell like people they they make a big deal about that. Like you know, what is wrong with him? Because <laughs> <You laughs> like you said on the radio, I mean you 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 never really hear what he says. I mean obviously they can't play that on the radio. There's just like some howls that he does, but on the movie they they play part of that where he just starts going off and, and what he's saying is is it could be definitely offensive uh, <laughs> to some people, but other people were probably just like you know, man, that was really radical. I mean he yes he really kind of you know came out of an area that I wasn't really expecting, which you know that that, that was the thing about him too. Some people got it, some people really did not. You know, yeah, and uh, and but that was what was cool about that whole period. I mean, it was it was very different. I mean, you know, the 60s were still kind of you know, you know, tame compared to like yeah. you said, you know, you touched on about you brought straight out of Compton. I mean, that would have been fun to come out yeah. in the oh. 60s, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think maybe some of this stuff, you know, and some of his antics on stage. I think he probably viewed as some kind of art, like some kind of performance art. Oh yeah, performance, yeah. you know. And and I mentioned earlier that they got fired from the Whiskey a Go Go, and this is why they got fired because they did this song, the end, and then he went on this f bomb rant at the end, and they fired him. Yeah, they, they were the house band at Whiskey a Go Go, and this got him fired from that yeah. gig. I think um, that might be the scene in the movie. I have it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but I think that I think that might be the scene where they they got fired. Um, okay, I mean, I I need to watch the tours again. I need to watch it because I never saw it. Yeah, it's, I never saw that movie. Um, I need to, and now I want to see it. <laughs> it's <laughs> but uh, pretty good. Val Kilmer did he? If you if you look at Val Kilmer's face, he he's kind of got the the whole Jim Morrison look in his in his face when he you know when he did it. I was like. Because at first I was like, man, this is gonna be it. but he did a pretty good job. I mean, I was I was impressed, you know. Yeah. Even though yeah. Some of the movie was not as good as what I hope, but it was it was it was good. You know, it was decent yeah. enough. You know. So anyway. Yeah. It, one other thing I wanted to mention is you know, about this song that that got me was it, it's very thought provoking. You know, you're going through it, you're wondering, you know, what does it all mean, and 
all that stuff and the whole song is in this kind of nebulous minor mode and uh it'll sort of uh really organically kind of venture into other exotic sort of middle eastern kind of modes and come back to minor and stuff and it goes through this whole thing and it gets to the very end of this 12 minute thing and the last thing that you hear is the very last chord that Robbie Krieger plays is this very optimistic sounding major chord that he just sort of <clears throat> strums and then at the very and you're like oh okay well, what does that mean <laughs> you know like yeah it's it, yeah the whole thing is is uh is yeah it's uh, very cool very yeah uh, very I, I artsy and very uh, thought-provoking yeah another thing about uh uh robbie and, and the drummer from the doors eight when when jim and ray met them they met them in, from a um it's like a middle eastern meditation group so you know some of that makes sense you know <laughs> where they that that probably carried over yeah from that into this um you know that that's one thing and another thing about the doors is they they had influences coming from a variety of places and 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 you know were able to kind of translate all that and and make it work um sometimes you know you know very you know shockingly like in this yeah. case so yeah awesome well um let's listen to it cool all right this is part of the end by the doors the killer awoke before dawn. He put his boots on. He took a face from the ancient gallery and he walked on down the hall. He went into the room where his sister lived and then he Paid a visit to his brother and then he He walked on down the hall And he came to a door And he looked inside Father, yes son, I want to kill you Mother, I want to Take a chance with us Come on baby Take a chance with us Come on baby Take a chance with us And meet me at the back Of the blue bus Do not blue rock Come on, yeah! 
just heard the end by the doors and we're going to move on to our second album thomas a dorsey um this collection called precious lord released in 1994 um i believe a year after his death and uh it's a collection of many of his you know most recorded most loved songs um is sung by various gospel artists so um yeah go ahead yeah i I was i was thinking um what what you were saying i mean the the titles of these songs immediately jumped out at me because i was like you know wow he wrote that you know i mean some of these songs have been done by everybody i mean everybody you can think of in gospel music from way back up to now i mean i i really did not know you know until i started reading about him how major his influence had been, you know, on gospel. It's it's really tremendous. I mean, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, that's that's like a song that gets sung at like every funeral <laughs> almost. You know, right. when, when it comes to, to, to black people, African American people, I mean it not every funeral, but I mean quite a few, you know, and I mean I was like, he wrote that song? I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I mean that that's the, the that was the first thing that kind of struck me is that his his influence on on gospel music um is a uh, is it's a big one. Um Well, yeah, he he was I mean he set the the blueprint, the template really for what gospel would be in the 20th century, really. Yeah. I I'd, I'd agree uh, with that for sure. Yes. Uh that song you just mentioned, that was the one that was sung at Martin Luther King's funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it was sung at that funeral by Mahalia Jackson, and um, uh, too bad we all can't get that at our funerals. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah that'd, that'd be nice. Just it's just one of those songs too, where he apparently was inspired uh, by the death of his his wife during childbirth, right. where obviously that's that's a pretty heavy blow, and it, it was just a situation where. He felt like he he really couldn't go on, you know, with what he had within himself. And it was just kind of like one of those things, you know, it's like, you know, Lord, I need you. I, I need you really bad. Just, you know, even if I don't know what's going to happen, just I just need to know you're there. Just just take my hand. I mean, you know, which a lot of people, you know, go through certain things like that. I mean, you know, whether you believe in God or not, I mean, just sometimes you get overwhelmed, you know. And that's what I think about when I think about that song. I mean, I'm, you know, we're not really talking about that song per se. We're 
listen to that song but that's that's the one thing whenever i i hear that it's just you know for the people who are just so bereaved or so overwhelmed by whatever you know and it's just like you know that's it's like the last you know thing you can think of it's just like you know you know help me through this <laughs> help me make it somehow or another and um you know he he started off apparently as as kind of like a blues man and um you know after the you know the the trauma of of his wife passing away kind of rededicated himself and you know i mean i obviously that's that's something i mean that's very very sad but without that happening i mean he never would have gone in the direction probably that he went um to make the decision to to create all this music um yeah you know so uh, tragic really tragic moment that turned uh his career you know and, and not immediately apparently his his success was you know delayed years i mean he, he he pressed quite a few records but no one really picked up on any of his music for like i think the first you know, three or four years after you know he he first set out which right you know that can be tough too obviously when you're you're trying to make music and and make a living sort of but you know no one's really you know into it at first you know right so right right yeah i mean he he uh not only was you know this um innovating songwriter in that genre but he was also uh kind of out of necessity a lot of times um kind of an entrepreneur um mm. and you know of course you know being african american in the, the early 20th century you know had to deal put up with a bunch of racist you know bs and um eventually just started his own publishing company mm. and which became a huge thing as well and started uh, an organization of uh gospel uh writers and directors and um was president of that organization and um just did a lot more for the genre than just writing songs and i think you know if he had just written the songs, that probably would have been enough. But you know, he did a lot more than that. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, you know, I just I, I'm inspired. I mean, obviously, like you said, growing up in an area or coming up in an area where, you know, you know, racism was was probably so prevalent. So many people had to make their own whatever, make their own job, make their own living. You know, rather than have to, you know, you know, just settle and um you know that's that's really a good a good story i mean the fact that he you know back in the day when a lot of people didn't have their own publishing companies he started his you know probably with with you know not much to go on but eventually as it grew yeah you know that that probably was like the lion's share of what he made you know yeah because you know obviously publishing is that's that's it you know so well yeah um, and i mean you know, a, a typical publisher, I mean, especially back then, is going to take at least 90%. Mm. Um, but when, he, he, you know, you're publishing it yourself, obviously you get 100%, you know. So yeah. he, um, obviously, that was probably tough in the beginning, but probably became a very lucrative business for him. Oh, yeah. You know, and, oh, yeah. and I think he ended up publishing a lot of other uh, songwriters and stuff. But, um yeah um cool yeah 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 this first track we're gonna listen to uh hide me in thy bosom um 
This is sung by an artist that we just talked about, like uh, yeah, a few episodes <laughs> ago. Dixie Hummingbirds, um, a- another you know acapella kind of tour de force <laughs> by them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I, I I like this song. I like the you know, like you said, the acapella sound of of gospel music. Um, in the the book, it it talks about this um, song as a it's a uh, like a conversational the the conversational cadences of spiritual and feel songs which i i can relate that to people who you know they're outside they're working or they're doing whatever where there's no instruments but there's music and um you know that that i can feel from this song i mean where you know you know just to get through the day sometimes you'll you'll sing my my grandfather used to always do that where he He'd be working, and, and sometimes he would sing. Sometimes he wouldn't even sing. It would just he would just hum. But the 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 feeling of what he was doing was it was gospel influence, you know. And um, you know, I, I love acapella style gospel music. You know, I, I really do. Yeah. Um, and and the Dixie Hummingbirds, they were just one of those groups that had had really great harmony. You know, nothing, you know, really, you know, complicated. Just uh, you know, great rhythm and great melody and um, it's, it was interesting to see them on this collection. I, I mean, that's one of the things that made me go right to this song. I was like, oh, you know, like you said, we just we just talked about them, <laughs> and um, you know, I I like this song, uh, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, you know, yeah, for this collection. So. Yeah, and I mean, uh, even this is something that Tom Moon points out. You know, even if you're not religious, you know, which you know, I'm I'm not religious, um, but even if you're not, you listen to this song, it makes you. feel feel good makes you feel a certain way you know in hearing this um and it again like a lot of great music it uh transcends you know a lot of the great music that we listen to on this uh podcast you know from these artists they a lot of it transcends that genre that they're put in yeah and uh yeah 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 that's that's one good thing about music is like you said even if you're you know, you're not religious or anything like that. I mean, um, it can just be an uplifting feeling or just a, yes. a feeling period that, that you can relate to, um, uh, whether the music's from the United States or India, you know, or, or wherever, you know, I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm open to, to all sorts of different things. Um, not everything, but, you know, I, I definitely am, am into gospel music, you know, even though, um, you know, I don't listen to all gospel music, but there's especially traditional gospel music like this. I, I definitely can can have a great respect for to see the roots of where gospel music came from, you know, because that's not something that's talked about, you know, a whole lot. You know, yeah. it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, it's it's another American art form, so to speak, that, that sort of gets overlooked from time to time, um, kind of like jazz, you know, but. Um, it's it's great to see you know where it started and then like i said so many of these songs when i started seeing the titles i was like he wrote all these songs i was like you gotta be kidding me <laughs> you know? yeah 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 so you know i mean all these people you know year after year who've sung these songs in choirs and, and recorded them on records i mean you know he probably got you know pretty pretty rich <laughs> from from the royalties. I think that's, that's pretty cool. You know, very cool. Yeah. 
Um, okay, let's listen to this first one. This is Thomas A. Dorsey's Hide Me in Thy Bosom, performed by the Dixie Hummingbirds. Oh, Jesus, hear me praying. Hear the words I'm saying. Moist my soul with water from on high. Oh, with the world I've seen around me, no evil thoughts can bind me. Savior, if you leave me, I will die. Oh, hide me in thy bosom until the storm of life is over. And rock me in the cradle of thy love. Oh, feed me, Jesus, feed me. 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 Till I want no more And take me to thy blessed home above oh, Make my journey brighter Make my burden lighter And help me to do good wherever I can oh, Let thy presence thrill me Let the Holy Spirit fill me And hold me in the hollow of thy hand And we just heard Hide Me in Thy Bosom, and we're going to move on to I'm Going to Live the Life I Sing About in My Song. Um, and this one, uh, it's, you know, an, uh, an upbeat gospel song. It's also kind of a sermon, really. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, to not be a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, go ahead. I was going to say the the one thing that I, I I thought about when I heard this song it it uh it's a it's a classic example of of the what you would think of as a a gospel song with a great solo up front. Or the the gospel soloist is is something that in in church is something that's that's so important. You know, someone who can who can take a song, you know, a singer and 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 make it like you said, like a sermon, you know, um, but, but they're singing and, um, you know, that, that's something that's so prevalent in, in churches now, you know, is that, that song with the great solo, the gospel solo, if you would, um, especially a song with it, with the, with the cadence of, of this song where it's kind of slow, you know, not, not blues, but, but sort of like blues, you know, um, in the way it is played. Um, and, uh, I love the way the piano sounds in this song. Um, it's, I, and just the way it's set up and, and the, the way it comes off, like you said, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like a sermon, you know, um, where, where someone's, you know, basically trying to, you know, get across the point, like you said, of not being a, not being a hypocrite and, and you know, living the life that you, you say you're going to lead or whatever. But um, anyway. Yep. Um, and uh, man, I did not write down the singer. Did you? <laughs> no, and and see, <laughs> uh, yeah. I I I wish I had I I had, I had it in front of me, but I you know you know my situation. I'm I'm in a part of my house where I'm away from my my information, yes, my computer. Yes. So, but that's that's okay. We can 
we could put it in later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let's listen to this. Cool. Um, this is Thomas A. Dorsey's "I'm Gonna Live." Uh, sorry, I'm <laughs> I'm going to live the life I sing about in my song. got to live, live the life that I sing about, in my song, I'm gonna stand up. If in a crowd If I'm alone On the street Back in Philadelphia That's my home But I've got to leave If it now 
and we just heard I'm Going to Live the Life. I sing about it in my song. And we're going to move on to our third album, Michael Duche and Beau Soleil. Um, their album, Bayou Deluxe, from 1993. Uh, and Michael Duche was kind of an interesting character. You know, he he went to New Orleans in that area um, in the 70s. Uh, it might have been the late 60s. I can't remember. But uh, he went there on in it. Uh, almost like a sort of like an ethnomusicologist almost like a he went there on a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts and uh, he went there to sort of learn about the traditional Cajun and Creole music and and basically you know went around found a bunch of uh, a lot of them were old timers you know uh, purveyors of this music that this music was sort of disappearing from the region and you know newer generations were not embracing it and not playing it and he was sort of like almost like a preservationist you know going to record this music and uh, learn about it before it disappeared kind of that kind of mission and um, he ended up uh, kind of studying with a lot of the older masters that he found uh, from this, uh, you know, this musical tradition. And he ended up forming his own group, um, getting together a bunch of musicians that he met down there, really learning these styles from all these different players and uh, forming this group, Beausoleil, in uh, the 70s. And this was part, I'm not saying it's uh, was completely responsible for it, but it was part of this Cajun revival that happened in the 70s and uh, caused, you know, a lot of younger generation to pick up this music and uh, start playing it again and then introducing their own spins and their own takes on it. So um, that's how this started. Yeah. 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 It's it's pretty cool that, like I said, going back to the roots of, of, of a music that's that's a lot older than the time that, you know, it's sort of being revitalized. It's, it's cool to see someone, you know, especially go back to musicians that played, actually played it, you know, when it was prevalent, when it was, you know, when it was still in style. Um, and to gather like a, an all-star group, if you will, of guys that were like that, you know, that, that's really cool. Um, and I, I, it had me looking back to, where the music came from, I guess, like old French settlers in Canada and stuff and how the music sort of migrated, <laughs> if you will, you know, to different places like, like obviously Louisiana, uh, and, uh, in other places, uh, where, where the French you know, also settled. Uh, it's, it's cool to kind of look back at that and, and, and see the origins of it. And, um, when I think of music like this, you know, like old time, old kind of roots, music you know because obviously obviously this is french but it, it kind of reminds me a bit of, of some irish folk music it's not really irish but like what the chieftains do you know they they have like a a style yes. where they take you know really an, a music that's much older than the time of now and, and and sort of revitalize it the way those guys used to play it back then uh, and some of the same instruments even at times you know so um you know i i liken this sort of to what they're what they're kind of doing um, and I, and I like that where you get to hear something that's, you know, 
that's really good, but from a time that's way before, you know, the now. Um, yeah. You know, where it's obviously everything is is much more acoustic and and um and some of the style and the and the and the rhythms is, you know, it still carries over, you know, to yeah. to modern yeah. day, you know, sort of ears, if you would. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Um, we're gonna start with this tune, awesome Osun two step. And uh, this is really what I think about when I think about Cajun and uh, Zydeco music. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me so much of all those great outdoor festivals in Houston, you know, from that I saw as a kid in the 80s. And, and Houston is so close, you know, to New Orleans and that area, you know, that they would get a lot of Zydeco and Cajun bands, you know, at those mm-hmm. things. And... Uh, this is just like the the very best of that that I remember, you know. And it's it's fast paced. It's it's music that's meant to be danced to, you know. It's instrumental, um, but uh, it here it's you know it's played at really the highest level. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought that up too. I I, I usually think of what you say as Cajun and Zydeco as not mutually exclusive. Um, both definitely, you know, have styles that are close, but right, right, but definitely not the same. Uh, you know, Cajun is uh, I'm trying to think; it's it's more folksy, uh, whereas Zydeco definitely has more R and B, blues influence, um, and and that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes they they're they kind of you know blend, but. But I mean, I just just from my own personal experience, I mean, like Cajun, I, I definitely think, you know, is, is definitely more more folk sounding, more root sounding um, with the I mean, because like I, I, I think about the instruments like the washboard. I mean, the washboard and, 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 and you hear like little bells clinging. I mean, you know, that kind of sound. But that that stuff can be in Zydeco music, too. But it's just the, the right. rhythm, I think, right. at times is different. But. But both, you know, both styles I love, you know, both styles, you know, definitely steeped in sort of French, Louisiana, Louisiana style music, you know, which definitely, yeah, you know, yeah, there's so much of it here. Like you said, the festivals and, you know, Houston is, uh, is definitely, uh, Zydeco friendly, Zydeco, Zydeco Cajun <laughs> yes. friendly. <laughs> yes. Yes. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, let's check out this first track and just, uh, hear it. Uh, this is, uh, Michael Duche and Beausoleil with, Awesome Olsen two-step.
And we just heard awesome Osin two-step. And we're going to move on to Matthew S. Mort, which means Matthew is dead. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this one, you would think by the title that it would be very slow-paced and dirge-like and, you know, depressing. And it's really not. I mean, it's re- I, I there's just something about this that I really liked. It's... Uh, it is slower, you know, it's slower than the awesome Osen two-step, but I didn't think it was, it's like, it's the tempo is like just on the edge of them sounding like they just want to break into something faster and danceable, you know, yeah. it's just on this. It's like, it's like the slowest tempo that they can be held to. Hey guys, I just wanted to jump in and let you know that uh, if you remember at the very beginning of the show, I talked about we were having some audio problems, and I thought we got them completely fixed. Apparently not. Um, I somehow have lost the entire audio of the ending of the podcast. I'm really not sure how that happened, but sometimes these things uh, happen in podcasting, and we have some unforeseen audio difficulties. So I am going to go ahead and uh, we're not going to get the uh, the very last part of our commentary, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, play the last track from Beau Soleil so you guys can hear it. This is Matthew Estmort. just heard matthew s mort and that's going to do it for 1000 recordings podcast episode 63 hopefully uh you know i had to record this after the fact when i was putting together the podcast i didn't realize that we had lost that last part of the the audio so um i apologize for that and uh try to make sure that that doesn't happen again um if you would like to send us an email send us an email to 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can join us on Twitter with our handle, which is at 1000RP. You can join us on Facebook. You can support us by going to patreon.com slash 1000RP and becoming a patron of our podcast. 
You can also support us by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and a review, which we will review, we will read on the show. And, uh, yes. And I guess I should do the whole uh, traditional what we're going to do next after this one. Um, let me see. Let me get the book out here. I wasn't expecting to do this. <clears throat> so on the next podcast, we're going to look at Charms of the Night Sky by Dave Douglas, jazz album. Uh, Five Leaves Left by Nick Drake and The Chronic by Dr. Dre. So that should be fun. And hopefully next time on the outro, you will also hear Mitch's voice. And uh, until next time, we will review more music from Tom Moon's book, 1000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die. Later, guys. I just wanted to pop in for a second to tell you guys about an awesome new podcast. It's one of my new favorites. It comes from guitarist and composer Matthew Cochran. It's called Goes to Eleven. So if you're any kind of guitar enthusiast, you probably get that reference. Um, Goes to Eleven is the weekly podcast about the world of the guitar. And uh, he basically covers guitar heroes first season is about guitar heroes and uh, it's extremely well produced and well done um, I, I love this podcast uh, he's got a season two coming up which starts Thursdays in September uh, among the highlights he's interviewing Chris Critter Eldridge from the Punch Brothers fingerstyle legend Don Ross and the Polish classical guitar virtuoso Marcin Dilla and I it's awesome guys go check it out it's one of my new favorites goes to 11 it's available on itunes and other places where you get your podcasts and uh check it out matthew cochran goes to 11.